Hey, it's Bernsey. And I'm Paul. And this is the Hi-Fi Sci-Fi Podcast. Today we're going to be talking about Lower Decks, Episode 2, Envoys. So I like this take. I like this take on an opening of, uh, you know, you got your assignments, you get the things that we're going to do throughout the episode, but then um, then things can change, right? Very quick uh, here at the start of the episode. Um, things flip a little bit uh, and then kind of throughout the rest of the episode too, right? Yeah, I mean, because we, we start out with, um, you know, it, it seems like it's going to be, you know, just another uh, episode about like, oh, here's our assignments and, and here's what we're up to. And um you know, I, I like the pairing of both Boimler and Mariner, and, and I feel like this episode really gets to let them shine, particularly when when you give characters like this uh, an assignment that is supposedly important, right? This this has to do with them being, uh, you know, envoys to, to, to ferry the honorable uh, General Corinne of the Klingon Empire uh, to the Federation Embassy, which I also, I mean, just... The, these two episodes also, I feel like, really get into the jokes and like the pacing of them really, really well. Like, I, I had some laugh out loud moments pretty early on, particularly when they did talk about the name of of General Corinne, mm-hmm. um, where I think it's Tendy who says like, um, "Oh, it sounds gosh, familiar." Yeah. yeah, yeah. Gosh, that name sounds familiar. <laughs> and and they try to go through all the reasons why, and it's finally uh, Mariner who just said, "Maybe it's because all Klingon names have an apostrophe in the middle of them for some unknown reason." She's like, "That's it." Yeah. Um, and, and I really, I, I liked that. Like, and there's basically a, a pretty standard A plot, B plot here, you know, right? We have, we're following Boimler and we're, we're following uh, Mariner, but then also um, there's kind of that really sweet relationship that's, that's developing between um, Tendi and Rutherford where, you know, Rutherford made the promise that he was going to hang out with Tendi so they could, you know, observe the the stars together i guess i couldn't figure out if that was really like an assignment that she had or just something they were going to do to hang out um but he's worried that he's going to have to go back on his promise um because of all of his engineering obligations so his conclusion is like well i just can't be an engineer anymore and so he literally tries out every department on the cerritos yeah i like the the b plot and i think they do a really good job here that um you know, Trek is not always great at that, not, not throughout the, the entirety um, of Trek, of really having a good clean A plot, B plot relationship, um, or interweaving them, or making sure that um, they're both interesting, or, you know, not devolving in the C and D plots. Um, right. But I thought that Rutherford B plot was really good in this one, yeah. Um, and just the way that, yeah, the way that would play out is obviously a, a, a sort of um cartoonish caricature of, of all of these different um divisions of the ship but it's a good b plot uh, i think it also the the fact that it it sort of feels rushed is part of how it's written maybe intentionally but also because obviously they have less runtime to work with they have that half hour instead of the hour um so i think i think it works i think at times, I think I'd probably like the Rutherford plot a little better than the main plot on this one, uh, interestingly enough. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'll actually, 
I'll, I'll go along with you on that one. I was actually thinking about saying that as well, is that, you know, the, the thing that you can say about the Corinne plot is it's basically just a standard, like, wacky caper, right? Where it's like, they're, they get drunk with him, he gets way too drunk, he flies off with the shuttlecraft, and they spend most of the episode just trying to track him down to get him, you know, back to where he's supposed to be. Ha <laughs> ha, hijinks ensue. But like, yeah, I feel like the 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 stuff with Rutherford and Tendy, you know, it actually has heart and and it um it, it I I always I feel like this show works the most when it's really picking apart how Starfleet works and like making really pulling really good comedy out of that. And and there was tons of that in the Rutherford plot where he's like, "Which department do I yeah. make a future in?" Well, I also think uh, a lot of the interplay, right? They have such good characters already, even just outside the main four, that a lot of the Rutherford stuff works because he gets to interact with so many people, um, just people in general, right? He, he gets to interact with all the uh, the different command structure in each of those, um, which is great. And on the planet, I, they, they get separated from Corinne very quick. Um, yeah. And then they're just sort of wandering around the planet and they're interacting with other species, other alien species, which is fun at points. Um, but th- some of that just kind of feels almost almost boilerplate-y, right? Um, that it's just this sort of mission gone wrong, but the stakes aren't... They never really make the stakes that high. It's never really like... They say at the beginning that they'll be in trouble if they don't get back in a day or something, but it doesn't really feel that that much stakes. Right, yeah. Um, and the fact that Rutherford is sort of changing his entire career... Even though it's done as this like comical arc, almost feels like it has more stakes um, for the characters, which yeah. is interesting. Well, and it, I think a lot of that has to do with, um, you know, the the portrayal by, uh, you know, the actor who plays Rutherford. He does a good job of selling just how much tension this is putting him through because yeah, yeah. <laughs> they, they make a really good like they've already sold by the middle of the second episode that only has, you know, a half hour of runtime that, you know, this dude just wants to be an engineer, right? Like this is yeah. just where, yes, where his heart like, lies. Yeah. But um, it's also interesting that he's like very good at other things, but then also terribly bad at other things. <laughs> yeah. The, the scene where he's trying out to be a security officer <laughs> and, and Shax has him fight the Borg and he literally lets slip. He's like, Oh, this is just a, like a hazing thing that we do to break in people to tell them how, you know, to, to basically inform them you're not great and like, you know, teach them humility. And he's like, <laughs> he just like <laughs> went through yeah, an entire turns legion. Turns on of his cyborg burns. implant and it's like, oh, <laughs> cool. That's, that's what this does. Um, <laughs> it's so good. Which would make sense, right? That if you had that and you're like, oh, great. Like it's essentially a HUD, right? It's, it's essentially a HUD in a video game. Right. Um, and yeah. And then on the opposite side of that coin though, the fact that he is so bad uh, in the command chair, Right when he is uh, <laughs> put into the simulation by um, what's his name? Um, oh, the commander uh, Ransom. Uh, Ransom. Yeah, yeah, um, and just immediately just gets in trouble in these simple, simple simulations. Uh, maintain course. <laughs> <laughs> that has I'm I'm going to level with you. That has literally never happened before. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> The the part where like uh the ship starts violently decompressing and they go through all the things that's happening and then like all of the kindergartners have been blown into space. Yeah. <laughs> like, 
I was getting very, um, very much like Spaceballs vibes from that one, where it's just like uh, they're closing down the ship, you know, and it's like all of the animals have been vacated from the zoo. All of, you know, it's just yep. like yep. <laughs> well, just detailing how his maintain course order has led to absolute chaos on the Cerritos inside of about 15 seconds. They also, um, I, I love the fact that they drop these little tidbits without explaining them, um, because I feel like too many other um, of these Star Trek series, especially, um, I mean, especially ones that are uh, prequels or that are closely tied to other things, um, or even, I mean, TOS does this a lot, even as the first series, um, where they'll like say something and then you're just crossing your fingers and like, please don't like, please don't explain it to me or like, please don't dig into this. Just say it's this thing and walk away. Um, and I, I think those are some of the weaker points of track. Not, not from a techno babble standpoint, because I think those are those are pretty good. But um, the, the, what I'm talking about, I guess, what I'm talking around is the Janeway protocol, um, because they just drop this line like "try the Janeway protocol." It's like, what's that? And then he doesn't tell him, and they don't tell him ever. And it's a nice reference to Janeway and whatever this could be, without being like, "Well, remember that time that Janeway did this thing," um, and winking at the audience. So. Well, I when when that came up, that that you, you raise a really good point. I didn't realize that in the time that <clears throat> that's a good way for the audience to sort of write in their own joke, so to speak. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm certain it has to be because it's a it's a, a temporal rift because uh, they're they're making some sort of a reference. I, I think that's the anomaly that they've encountered, right? Uh, the first uh, one I think is a temporal anomaly, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So. Um, I, I wonder if maybe it's supposed to be a reference to um, the several, you know, no, notorious, you know, time travel incidents that the, the Voyager has been into either, you know, the, the finale where future Janeway comes back <laughs> yeah. to basically yeah. deus ex machina, the whole series, um, or, you know, the, the multiple run-ins with, um, you know, future Starfleet, right. Where they, they, they time are cops. literally, yeah, they're literally getting time copped. So, but I, I also wonder too, if maybe it was a reference to, you know, there's, there's a pretty, common star trek meme uh that goes around where you know it's it's there's three ways to do a thing it's the right way the wrong way and the jane way you know mm-hmm. um so you know i i didn't know if maybe it was a reference to that but but again i think you're right the strength of that is they just let it sit there it, it can know? be a reference to any of those and mm-hmm. you feel good as a fan of this this larger class of star trek shows that you can come up with some where you're like, oh, cool, I could, that kind of makes sense this way or that way, right. without just being like spoon fed an explanation, which yep. I thought was great. So, yep. There was also, um, I, I really want to talk about the way that this episode concludes because, um, you know, there, there was a point where, um, you know, kind of back to, I guess you can call it the A plot, but when Mariner and Boimler are trying to track down, um, you know, Corinne, their, their Klingon general ambassador who's, drunk flown a shuttle craft can i say that boimler's dress uniform looks amazing too (laughs) just from a like they we've said this a bunch of times but they just like have really nailed what this needs to look like yes Um, and to have like a dress uniform that is just like hey this is perfect like this is exactly what it would look like um and it's completely you know he wears it perfectly as as you would expect him to um to meet this diplomat but yeah, just mm-hmm. these small things like that. Well, and the fact that they use it as um, as a you know an opportunity for um, 
uh, for Mariner to again kind of jab him about it too that he's in full dress for this. Yep. But yeah, that that then the full dress is, you know, straight again referenced from from TNG dress uniforms. You yep. know, the the look and the feel and everything from from this show, um, really really just uh, has gotten it right. And actually, <clears throat> you, you bring up something about the the visual look of the show. And, and before I get to the the point that I was going to make here about the conclusion and, and where we wind up. Um, I had some more time to think about the Cerritos as well, which um, is, they say it's a, it's a, what, it's a California class starship. Is that what they said it was? Um, I can't remember, but um, there's a, there's a YouTube series that I want to shout out um, called Space Dock. Uh, and it's basically starship breakdowns, any universe, any science fiction, you know, any ship. And they just kind of go through, you know it's a perfect channel for a self-ascribed ship nerd like hmm. myself, right? Which is just, I, I, I've, one of the things that I've loved since I was like six years old about any science fiction was just cool looking spaceships. And as an adult nearing 40 years old, you know, man myself, uh, I, I'm still, you know, starships are cool. Um, the point that, that uh, the gentleman who runs Space Dock made about the Cerritos that finally made it click into me that made me realize, oh God, I actually do really love this design is that um, he pointed out that it really does look like one of the ships in the background of like best of both worlds, right? Like in the space graveyard of ships that all oh. got destroyed by the Borg. Like it looks like a ship that was kit bashed together, right? Sure. Like sure. It, it looks like, you know, <clears throat> it's not supposed to be the hero ship. It's not supposed to be the ship that is, you know, front and center um, in every episode. It just happens to be because that's what this series is about. But like normally Star Trek is about the Enterprise uh, or or Voyager, or, you know, even the Defiant on Deep Space Nine, like these big or or really striking, imposing looking hero ships. And then all around in the background, Starfleet is made up of all this other crap that they cobbled together because they have to feel the giant Starfleet. And like the Cerritos is one of those, right? It's yeah. not, it's not the top of the line, state of the art, you know, best of the best. It's everything that was left when we had a couple of spare deflector dishes, you know, warp nacelles hanging around and we needed to stick it on a saucer section from a, from a galaxy class starship, you know? And, and as soon as that clicked for me, I was like, Oh God, this is perfect. This is exactly <laughs> what they did. Yeah. Um, so I did look it up and you are right. It is a California class. So good pull on that one. Nice. Um, I, I, I had a note about this too, though, that um, even just its registry number, um, like I wrote it down and because I had to write it down in the credits, I was like, oh, that's an interesting registry number, like 755 something. And um, I was like, I, oh, I couldn't even catch all of it because it's so long and so unremarkable. Yep. Um, it's 75567. Um, but it's like, it's also so perfect, especially in contrast to something like, you know, 1701. Um, right. That's like right. super memorable and has, you know, it's a low enough number that you're like well maybe they started at the you know there's probably not single digit or double digit ships out there triple maybe even so this is still a pretty low number in multiple respects and it's an 01 right is is so important and it's just a, a very memorable number but 75567 is not um, right and it it's almost certainly purposeful to be like yeah this is not a memorable or remarkable ship it's a ship um it's the one you're watching, but it's not, it's not the enterprise and <clears throat> yeah. that's kind of okay. Yep. Yep. Well, and it's also, um, I'm sure this was intentional as well. 
um, where they're placing this in the Star Trek timeline, right? Which is, it is, you know, uh, about 10 years after the last Trek film, yeah, right? Yeah. 10 years after Nemesis. The, the registry number of the USS Voyager, which was also, I mean, the only reason that the Enterprise is 1701-whatever is because they've established this convention of, you know, those ships that get that are that are hero ships basically that are you know rechristened over and over again they can reuse the registry and just affix you know an alpha at the end of it or a you know whatever um but voyager when it launched was ncc 74656 and conceivably you put that in the timeline of how many ships they may have put together you know given yeah. the speed that, that the federation works they had a giant war with a giant you know fleet and stuff 75567 fits right in there in mm. terms of just all right we need to Put another ship together. What's the next registry number on the spreadsheet? Here we go. Seven, five, five, six, seven. Here you go. Cerritos. Godspeed. Boy, I would not be shocked if somebody like did a statistical analysis to plot that trajectory. That right. uh, <laughs> Just be like, what is a, a likely range of numbers that they would be on in this timeline? Yep. Yep. It harkens back to the days where they had, you know, in, in TNG and DS9 and Voyager, they had a small staff of people whose job it was to maintain that stuff, right? Was, was just to, to kind of like observe Canon to, to look through precedent to, um, you know, to kind of just make sure that stuff was tweaked in the script so that it felt like one giant universe. And it feels like this show does its homework. Also, just to clarify for our listeners sake, um, did you know the Voyager registry number off the top of your head? Or did you uh, have did. to look that up? Okay. I, I, just, I did. just, okay. <laughs> no point. Just putting it out there for our listeners. <laughs> uh, I believe it's a reference to um, Rod Roddenberry's uh, birthday. Uh, ah. I believe he was born. Uh, yeah. I believe it's like July 4th. I, I can't remember exactly what it is, but yeah. Seven, seven, four, six, five, six is, um, uh, in, in some way a reference that way, I think. Um, but it was also just selected because it's like, I don't know, we need a big number. There's a lot of spaceships. Um, <laughs> and that was always a criticism too about Voyager, right? Is that that registry number is not memorable. I memorized it because I watched that when I was in high school and I was a giant dork. And it's yeah, just, sure. it's, it's stuck <laughs> with me. But yeah, NCC 74656. So. I think um, just some other things before we get to the end, because I think that's where you were headed. Um, yeah. As we're talking about characters, right? I think they're also doing a great job here of creating just characters that are easily distinguished and that have their own character. They're not just all these like copy pasted people in the background. Um, and two of them, right? The the doctor, who's um, I meant to look up the species, right? The cat doctor. Um, do we right. know the species of the cat doctor? I don't know if they have said it. Um, I think. I'm, I'm sure there is a designation of, of that species, but um, I'm looking through what I'm seeing. I'm, I'm not seeing anything jumping okay. out at me right now. Um, but then the other one, um, right towards the end of this one. Well, I think oh, it's sorry, during the... No, she's uh, she's a Cation, uh, which oh. is a species, I think, that's actually already in Star Trek lore, I think. Hmm. Um, I think there may have been references to them in uh, the animated series. Oh, yeah. Uh... In fact... Uh, there's a, there's a female Cation who was part of the crew, um, in the, the animated series. There's also in the background, a male Cation in Star Trek for the voyage home in the court scene, uh, at the end. Wow. That's a, hmm. (laughs) That's a deep pull to have the court scene. Wow. Anyway. Um, but I mean, I, I like that character a lot and it's, um, I mean, 
again, anytime they get to build out this universe, you know, in because it's animated, they get to do stuff like this in world build in ways that would take tons of time if it was a live action show, right? You'd have to either CG that person or put them in a ton of makeup um, to have them to be a cat doctor, right? And if you right. just tell an animator, like, oh, yeah, this one's a cat doctor, like, you know, it probably takes a little bit more time the first few times to draw it, but then <laughs> they just learn how to draw this character. It's just another yep. character. Yep. Um, so it's not difficult to world build that way. The same with the planet, right? When they get down to this planet, it's like, oh, wow, this is like a great planet and, and they're landing and you see the whole city sprawling. It's like, yeah, to an animator, that's just another scene that they have to draw. Um but the other character moment that I thought was really good um, was that the um, the Bajoran security officer at one point um, when he comes in, he says, in the name of the prophets, right? That's like yep. the the way he, he is. Uh, that's just a thing he would say. And it's like, wow, well, that makes tons of sense for a Bajoran security officer. And already, like, it distinguishes him as this different sort of person that, um, you know, if uh, just a regular person came in and said, like, oh, holy cow or something. Right. Um, this is really painting that picture of, well, he's a Bajoran. So, yeah, it, it, uh, it, it really warms the cookies of my nerd heart because it, it seems like it's a show that's written by people who spent way too much time in their youth watching Star Trek, just like I did. And, and it's, you know, they're using it to, to mine a lot of jokes, but also, you know, write some characters that, that have some heart and, uh, yeah. and know, a show. And a Ferengi, so. And a Ferengi, <laughs> exactly. Well, and so that's that's where I was headed before too. Was um, so so that conclusion where, um, you know, basically throughout this chase that that Boimler and Mariner have been on, um, you know, Boimler is. I, I think we're establishing what's going to be kind of a dynamic between these two characters, right? Is that seemingly um boimler wants to be in the inner circle he wants to be you know mr starfleet right but but the the tension that he'll always have with mariner is that mariner does like she she disavows everything that he wants but she's just naturally better than him in a lot of these circumstances because she's not trying too hard right she's just she's been around the block a few times she's seen some things and so she's you know kind of wise to a lot of this stuff that boimler's just largely clueless on uh, you know because he's he's sticking his head in too many you know procedural manuals and not poking his head up and looking around a little bit i, I think it's the right to make a D metaphor right it's the intelligence wisdom difference right? correct that you would say yep. that boimler has high int low whiz and uh, mariner has high whiz low int Right. Um, and I, I wouldn't even say she has like, she, it's, it's not that she has low end. That's a good point. <laughs> yeah. It's but just that, um, she has yeah. more, she's a wisdom based character. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And I think that that makes, you know, Boimler uncomfortable. And so, you know, there's, there's this dynamic where at the end they're, they're, you know, <laughs> they, they get visited by the typical slimy Ferengi, right? And we're talking like <laughs> oh, this yeah. portrayal of the Ferengi is like season one TNG Ferengi, oh, right? It's just, can I just moment. say, uh, the Ferengi are an underused species in Trek. Um, and obviously I love Corkspar and Nog and Rom um, and, uh, and Zek um, and all, all the, the sort of problems they bring with them, certainly. Um, but in DS9. Right. Well, and I think, I think it's fair to say too, that um, it wasn't really until DS9 came around and the writers of that show really decided to put in the work oh, to yeah. try to, to try to make, 
um, you know, the Ferengi culture have some something to it that that they really became. You know, I, I'll say this: that's that's one of the great services that DS Nine did to the Star Trek franchise is that overall rehabilitation of like what Ferengi culture is. And like, sure, sure, very again, very true to what originally was laid down in in season one tng but like they sanded off all those rough problematic edges where where they were just trying too hard to make the ferengi this thing that they weren't which was like this well, galactic yeah. menace you know yeah right? we talked in, about that yeah when we were talking about season one that like they were originally supposed to be a villain like a major villain race yeah gene roddenberry had envisioned the ferengi in season one of tng to be like the replacement for the Klingons, right? Yeah, because yeah, exactly. you have you've got a Klingon standing behind the the command crew over the arch, you know, yep, um, uh, on the bridge of the Enterprise. So it's like you can't have that antagonist anymore. So you've you've got to find a new one. And originally, it was supposed to be the Ferengi, and, and we all know, you know, how that, how that turned played out. out. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, so I think the Ferengi are great though because they are, and and why DS Nine was able to work with them so well because starting with them in TNG like that as almost this this enemy and then in DS9 sort of having them be a regular character they get to write them so gray right they they really get to write them as um they're not vulcans right they're not like one of these um these these like stalwart pillars of the federation um they're this like race that is just out there trying to make profit um yeah. and like yeah when you run into a frangy like this this portrayal uh, in this episode it's like yeah maybe it's gonna go bad like it's it's unclear where the frangy are in that and um there's frangy out there that are you know a, a wide range it's not just one of these races that they have in track that it's like well all of this species are the enemy or all of the species are not um, they can write them in so many different ways. Um, there's yeah. a lot more, um, yeah, there's a lot more complexity and nuance to the Ferengi as a species, which I don't know, it's a lot of fun, but then to see yeah. such a like caricature of them, see, like you said, t season one TNG caricature of the Ferengi in this episode, it is just like laughable, um, that Mariner is pretending not to know that this is a Ferengi. <laughs> Well, and that's what's really funny too is that that yeah, I mean, almost instantly she's she's like, no, oh, no, that's, that's not a Frangie. Like, come on, let's go. And like, you know, the red flags go up immediately where you're like, okay, somebody who's who's as as streetwise as Beckett Mariner, you know, has never uh, had dealings with a Ferengi. Like, come on. And and to her credit, she plays it really straight. Like, you know, she's she's just, oh, I don't know anything about this, you know, right? And and gives Boimler his his moment to kind of save the day. Um, and then that scene at the end where she like, <laughs> yeah, she, she calls him up, you know, and, and oh, by the way, how's the family, you know, and stuff yeah, like and he's that. wearing a suit, you know, or something <laughs> and a monocle. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Just really, really well. But done. it also then sell, sells that point home, right? That there are like, there are Frangie that are like TNG season one, but then there's Frangie that are out there like running a business or whatever this one's doing, you know? Yep. Yep. Exactly. So, yeah, it's just, um, again, I think it constantly amazes me that like, you know, obviously, there's the, you know, the show's not perfect, not all the jokes land, you know, where they want to. But I, I feel like I feel like this episode, in terms of like, setting this show on the, the course, you know, that it needs to go in terms of like, 
what it wants to be, which is this this Star Trek show, which is is a loving send up of all things, you know, Star Trek. Um, I feel like this show does a much better job of kind of laying out what these episodes are going to be like, like giving us a, a format. You know, I mean, I feel like any pilot is tough and, and historically, right. A lot of Star Trek pilots are tough, right. You know, look back at, at yeah. you know, the way yeah. Star Trek series start and it's usually pretty uncomfortable yeah. and not really representative of where we go. I feel like this series had a really strong pilot comparatively. Um, but this second episode, I started to get a lot more of a like, okay, like I, I see what we're going to be doing, you know, week to week um, just as, as a, as a series and I'm on board with it. You know, I, I feel like they were able to pack in a lot of, um, you know, a lot of heart and a lot of reason for me to actually like these people that we're spending this time with, but also, you know, just that, that wonderful send up or, or observational humor about, you know, a franchise that's been running for over 50 years. And, and I love it. Yeah. I think there's, um, yeah. And it, a lot goes back to that point of this being a shorter episode, right? That there's not a lot of room for fluff. Like, yep you're not just writing for writing's sake. Like I feel like they're trimming probably more than anything, but it allows them to pack a lot in. Um, there's a small bit of trivia on the Rutherford's uh, uh, B plot. Um, this is the first episode in the entire franchise in which a character is seen wearing the uniforms of all three divisions. Um, oh, wow. I and think about that. Right. And they did that in a half hour. Right. <laughs> and so and no other series has ever tried to do that, even in a even in a, a longer show. Um, well, and, and I think that, you know, if I if we can kind of bring this home, I think that's probably that's a really good example that you just pulled. And another reason why um, I'm really growing to to like this series a lot is that it's it's doing all these things that were always like there in the Star Trek universe. But like nobody ever really did like if you think about you know star trek the next generation the biggest version we got of that was Jordy leaving the helm and going down to engineering right but that was this mm -hmm. big momentous thing it was like oh people don't really do that and i, I suppose yeah. of course later wharf transfers from security tactical to to command when he's at, at deep space nine but those are things like you don't see career moves like that a yeah. lot yeah exactly um, at least on screen they'll make reference to them like people getting a transfer to another ship or stuff like that but what i like about lower decks is it does it does all these little things to actually sell the fact that the federation is this big you know, organization and there's nuts and bolts that, that operate underneath the surface. It's like all the other Star Trek shows were too busy, too focused on being the bridge crew that this crew mocks that they didn't take the time to talk about what's a day, you know, in the life of a Federation officer, you know, yeah. and, and that's, that's what I like about it is it's all that world building that they never had time for before or, uh, that again, we're getting all the time. Yeah. Again, the capability for it too, though, because if you like in an episode of TNG, if you had a Klingon and a Ferengi in an episode, you'd be like, whoa, um, right. yeah. big budget episode. Um, like what's happening here? It would be like a big episode. Uh, yeah. And they're on a planet and they have, you know, a Klingon and Ferengi, but then they have all these other, like I had to look up all these different species. Um, but there's Lurians, there's Arcturians, there's Vendorians. There are um, what the... Andorians, um, the the bar, the bar full of yeah, that's Andorians, right? I didn't write yeah, that yeah. one down. Mm -hmm. um, and it's like, yeah, it's, there's tons of these that you have not seen in a very long time, or like only seen in super rare places, um, like the animated series. 
Uh, and you could just toss them on screen. Again, the, the point I was making earlier. So, yeah. 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 Michael Westmore would be working until his fingers bled if we did this in the in the TNG or DS9 era. But, you know, here. Yeah, exactly. To your point, they can they can animate it. So there's a couple of episodes in TNG where they go to like some seedier bars and stuff where yeah, they're trying to do the Mos Eisley thing. And, and, and DN, like uh, DS9, obviously, because they have yeah. so many yeah. regular casts that are of all these different species. But yeah but it's what I, again it, it's um you know it, it's that opportunity to do that with more regularity that i think this show you know takes advantage of so so i i think that's a good place to wrap on envoys but before we go a few quick notes uh you almost certainly heard the theme at the beginning of the episode i just wanted to, to toss out a great thanks to um my co-host chelsea on my other star trek podcast at three to beam up uh, that if you haven't listened to, you should definitely be listening to. It's about the original series. But uh, Chelsea put that together, uh, composed that, arranged it. Um, I don't know exactly the proper words, but created it from from whole cloth. So a great theme that we'll be using uh, going forward. And I'm sure she'll uh, guest on this this podcast at some point as we as we get back into the uh, the next generation. So. Other than that, make sure to check out our website. Make sure to uh, tell your friends if you're enjoying this. Pass along word, write some reviews, any of those sorts of things. But if you wanted to uh, engage with us, if you have questions about the show or questions about these shows, we have, what, Twitter, Facebook, um, any of those places are a great place to follow us, too. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. Those are the best ways to get in touch with us. Just shoot us a direct message that way. We are uh, HFSF podcast. That is our at uh, on Twitter. We're also Hi-Fi Sci-Fi podcast on Facebook. Um, so either of those will will find us. So uh, yeah, get in touch with us. Let us know what you think as we get through these uh, Lower Decks episodes, which I've been really having a lot of fun with. Uh, and then we're going to dive back into season three of TNG. But that's going to do it for this one. Uh, until next time, I'm Bernsey. And I'm Paul. And we will see you out there.